Good evening. You get a week off next week, for the first time since January, I think. And then on Monday the 4th of April, Michael Crump, the assistant editor of the 18th Century Short Title Catalog, speaks on the ESDC Past and Future. And on Tuesday, April 5th, Alex Wilson, the Director General of the Reference Division of the British Library, will be speaking on the problems of incorporating rare book collections into general collections. Mr. Wilson has not yet learned what we've all learned in this country, that in library matters there no longer are any such things as problems. There are only challenges and opportunities. <laughs> so this is the challenge of moving, of incorporating rare book collections into large research collections. Remember also that on Wednesday, the 6th of April, Frederick Kilgore, the big mocker, I don't know how else to put it, behind OCLC, will be speaking in Midtown on library networks. The friends have been invited to that, and if anyone else who wishes to attend has not received an invitation would like to, uh, I am the place where they come from and would be delighted to give you one. So that's the week after next. Next week is free. This week we celebrate the appearance of Thomas Adams, who will be speaking on his many years as librarian of the John Carter Brown Library and related matters, and it's a great pleasure to have him here. Mr. Adams. Thank you, Terry. Um, when my predecessor, Lawrence Roth, about 1948, was called upon to give a similar talk, he ended up with a title similar to the one that Terry got out of me late one evening at dinner time. But he then, when he got up to speak, why he said he added a, uh, a subtitle, or a quarter of a century in the red. Uh, I'm going to add a subtitle, or 36 years in the racket. Uh, I would prefer, I, I would like to really talk about my, my entire career in rare books uh, and kind of give you some impressions of, my impressions of what it's been like to be in this very exciting profession. Back in 1947, when I went down to Philadelphia to take my first job, the rare book world was really a very small one. And... Now, I'm speaking only my perception of it. There were certain major figures in certain major libraries, and more or less in this order in terms of seniority of the, uh, of the librarians. In the wings, still alive, alive and active, was George Parker Winship, long since retired from Harvard, living out on the Charles River, but he'd recently published his book on the Cambridge Press, and was conducting himself in his usually waspish way, and in those days they used that term as applied to insects. Um, the great poobah was Clarence Brigham at the American Antiquarian Society, where he had gone in 1905 and began the revitalization of that institution, which is now, of course, one of the great flourishing uh, centers of study in this country. Incidentally, of course, to get the chronology, chronological picture uh, a little bit clearer, Winship went to the John Carter Brown Library in 1895. So, Then after Brigham, there was Belle de Costa Green at the Pierpont Morgan Library, 
where she had been for many years when it was still a closed and private institution. Uh, it was opened, as you all know, right after the Second First World War as a semi-public library. Um, then uh, there were two men who came right after the war. Then, then there were two men who, in the same year, went to their respective institutions. My father went to the Clements Library in the University of Michigan, and Lawrence Roth went to the John Carter Brown. Coming down a little bit later, there was Jake Q. Adams, who, along with Jim McManaway, were getting <clears throat> the Folger Shakespeare Library uh, on its feet and going. R.W.G. Vale at the New York Historical Society was one of the more prominent figures, having, who was in the process, of course, of completing Sabin uh, after having come down from the Antiquarian Society. Uh, where he had been librarian. Uh, then coming right down to just the years just before the Second War, there was John Cook Wiley at the University of Virginia, where under the leadership of Harry Clemens and the building of the Alderman Library, the arrival of the McGregor Collection, John and Fredson Bowers, John and later with Fredson Bowers and Linton Massey, where it of course begin that what has become the great center of bibliographical activity that, that Virginia is. And then up in Cambridge, there was William A. Jackson, who had arrived in the late 30s and built the Houghton Library, which was opened just before Pearl Harbor. And then down at the Library of Congress, there was Fred Goff, who had succeeded Arthur Houghton, Jr., when Arthur <coughs> left the curatorship of the rare book collection to go back to work for the family business in, in wartime. <clears throat> the last one, uh, I really, it's difficult to put a name to, name, you have to put more than one name to, and that was what was going on at Princeton. Uh, there, the new Firestone Library had just been completed under the leadership of Julian Boyd, in which he had installed a very handsome rare book room, housing a number of collections, including the Parish Collection, which was under the then under the leadership of, of uh, Alex Wainwright. Uh, of course, the shady books were, were, were there or coming there. And that was pretty much my perception of the rare book librarians and rare book libraries. You'll notice there's some omissions. You'll also notice that most of these men I've talked about and most of these libraries, with one or two exceptions, were oriented around a historical approach, that is, a historical approach to rare books. That is, the, the, their interest in rare books were, was that the books were uh, tended to deal with historical matters rather than literary matters. There was, in, in point of fact, of course, an entirely uh, very active things going on at Yale under the leadership of Chauncey Tinker, who was ensconced in that Gothic chapel in the cathedral that is the Sterling Library, uh, and with all those uh, students whom he educated to become book collectors. Uh, and right after the war, of course, Jim Babb is moving forward and there. Out in Chicago, there was Stanley Pargellis at the Newberry, and at the Huntington, John Pomfret had just gone there after having had a problem with the, with the, uh, as president of, of William and Mary because of some sort of football scandal. Uh, but, the, of course, the Blisses themselves were carrying on the, the, uh, uh, the, rare, the rare book activities. But you can see it was a pretty small world. It was even, and, and the, the, uh, 
one of the as one, another aspect of it was that it was tied together. The one that I was aware of was tied together pretty much by the New York, New Haven, and Hartford Railroad and the Pennsylvania Railroad. Uh, this made it possible for those people along that, what we now call the Northeast Corridor, to see a good deal of each other. Uh, Pargellis in Chicago, the people at the Huntington, the only way they could get east was by, by railroad. You could take an airplane, but it wasn't very comfortable, and there was no interstate uh, highway system. Uh, this is, these are things I think people tend to forget. By the way, I might add that my, that, uh, my father, I included my father in the, in the East Coast complex because it was possible to get on a train in Ann Arbor after work about 5 o'clock in the afternoon and get off at Grand Central at 8 o'clock the next morning. <laughs> and all, both sides of my family are in Philadelphia, so he had many occasions to come east. Among the booksellers, there were people like Lathrop Harper, whom I've spoken of on another occasion, the colorful Dr. A.S.W. A. Rosenbach, George, I mean, uh, Charles Goodspeed in Boston, along with Mike Waltz, were, were giants, Wright House in Chicago, uh, Ed Eberstadt, an irascible person, if there ever was one, uh, who had turned Western Americana into a fashionable field of collection, collecting, John Cohn and Mike Papantonio, who had started up their business again after the war, uh, one of my great, great heroes, Dick Wormser, who specialized in uncommon rare books. The Drakes and their American literature. And then uh, for me, um, two, two men, Howard Mott, whom you all know, and a man who in those days was his sidekick, Alexander D Davidson Jr. Both had trained in Harper's office and after the war had gone off on their own. Davidson Mott in American literature and Bill Davidson, Bill as we called him, in American history. There were other colorful figures like Ernie Wesson in Ohio that ran his bookshop along with a patent medicine business. And Dave Randall, of course, who was never dull. The collectors, there was Tom Streeter, was of course the major figure. Waller Barrett was just emerging after the war with his American uh, uh, literature. Don and Mary Hyde. Arthur Houghton, Bob Taylor, and Paul Mellon was to com coming along, and Harrison Horblitt in the history of science. And there again, but this pretty much sums up the, the, uh, the scene that I came into. And I came to the <coughs> from there I came to the library company, I came to the library company of Philadelphia, which at that time had been, uh, was under the administration of the Free Library of Philadelphia because the uh, library company had come on, on, poor, on bad times, Got rid of their, their uh, had to get rid of their staff, all except Barney Chesnick, who took over and administered one wing of the library company down at Broad and Chestnut, Broad and Christian, as a branch library for the Free Library. Uh, the Free Library itself had hired a man named John H. Powell, who none of you I'm sure ever heard of, as the assistant librarian in charge of research, a highly co colorful Welchman. Uh, the, and the uh, trustees of the Free Library decided that they wanted to make the Free Library a legitimate scholarly enterprise, so they brought Jack in to do something with some of the collections in the Free Library. Uh, they, the Free Library was about to get the, the Elkins collect collection and the library company. And Jack hired me at $1,800 a year to uh, make a list of the Western Americana. Uh, I should... <coughs> 
say at this time, at that point, I'd never even heard of Frederick Jackson Turner, so. <laughs> uh, but it was an exciting year I spent there because that was, those were the days when no one had touched, which is, of course, now revealed to us as one of the great American research libraries under the leadership of Ed Wolf. But I had fun playing around with those books long before Eddie got there. At the end of that first year, however, I was accepted an invitation from John Alden, who had taken over the newly opened rare book collection at the University of Pennsylvania. And there I came to know a number of very interesting people. Perhaps the one who will remain with me most powerfully is Rudolf Hirsch. To me, one of the great figures in the American book world, modest, retiring, but a very, very wise man. And the 10 years I, I spent at Penn having lunch with him almost every day was really the bulk of my education. John himself, of course, did a great deal for me, uh, particularly teaching me how to catalog according to the standards that he himself had learned under Bill McCarthy at the Houghton Library. Uh, another aspect of this, of my years at Penn, is that when John left after two years and I succeeded him as curator of rare books, uh, and then became a part of the inner administrative group that held a meeting every Tuesday morning under the leadership of Charles David, who was the, the librarian, uh, the rather director of libraries. And through that, I got some insights into the American library world as a whole that I would not have gotten, because Charlie David was the secretary of ARL. And in those days, that was the, the, the secretary was someone like Charlie David, and all the work was done by his secretary. And, but in those Tuesday morning meetings, many, much of the business of ARL was, was discussed. So I was able to get some insights into a world larger than the, than the world of rare books. Uh, while at Penn, John made sure that my... Uh, uh, education was uh, improved by sending me for a month to Charlottesville where I worked with John Wiley and worked with those books and came, came to see how another rare book collection operated. Basically, however, what we did at Penn was to create a rare book collection out of books in the stacks. Uh, there were great things at Penn. I remember one, one great discovery was an absolutely mint condition of Francis Hopkinson's pretty story, The First Piece of American Fiction, which at that time Wright recorded only one copy. And this, and this was in mint condition in wrappers uh, and found in the Franklin Papers. Um, when I was doing my, uh, most of my buying during those years was to strengthen the 18th century holdings of Penn, because, of course, Wing was in the process of being published, and everyone was, as they said, winging it. Uh, and, it was, and I felt that, it would be, that in terms of just the economics of the situation, I would, should buy, we should really concentrate on the 18th century, which in a sense was the beginning of my interest in that period. Uh, we built up a very respectable collection of Defoe, uh, and, and, and the, and the Augustine, uh, authors of the Augustine period. But again, my education was being, you see, in, I've, I've just got certain, in my case, I kind of conducted my education in public. Because one of the first things John gave me to do was to prepare descriptions of the Renaissance and medieval manuscripts at Penn, 
which uh, for the forthcoming, what ultimately became the, the Bond supplement to De Ricci. I'd never handled a medieval manuscript before in my life. Uh, and if, as events proved, after I'd left, the work had to be done all over again, but it was a great learning experience. Um, uh, then in 1957, uh, Charlie David retired and I was offered the position of the custodian of the Chapin Library at Williams College. Now, the year I'd arrived in Philadelphia, Bill Davidson, who was an, a loyal uh, uh, Williams alumnus, had tried to get me that job. Looking back at it, I'm appalled. <laughs> James Finney Baxter obviously took one look at this guy who'd just come in out of the, out of the cold and uh, gave the job to a... To, to, to Mary Richmond, who was the, a very able librarian, and she did a marvelous job, but she decided she wanted to leave then. And I, that experience, the experience of taking that job is kind of an interesting one, at least for me. As I've implied, my, my family's all Philadelphia. And my, wife, and my wife's family's all Philadelphia. And we were pretty well settled there, and uh, I thought, you know, I'd probably spend the rest of my career there. I didn't really have much in mind beyond that. When one day uh, I was going, attending a cocktail party at the Rosenbach Foundation, and those, uh, by that time Bill McCarthy had come down from from uh, 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 the hotel and was was the was the curator, and he always served his martinis in double old-fashioned glasses. There was a telephone call for me, and the telephone was out in the kitchen. I went, and it was James Finney Baxter asking me to come up to be interviewed for the, the Chapin job. Well, I said, I really can't answer you right now, Mr. Baxter. So I went home and talked to my wife, and we said, oh, well, all right, probably not. I mean, it's, we just had a child, and, and uh, I went, into, I went in, in the next morning. I was off set to, 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 to call Mr. Baxter and say, oh, gee, I don't think so. And I mentioned it to Rudy Hirsch, and Rudy said, oh, no. You should always go and see anyway. So uh, we did, and... We fell in love with the place, and I was offered the job, and we moved, moved up there in, uh, that spring. There are just a couple of aspects of my years at, at, at the Chapin I'd like to, like to comment on. One is, was the attitude of President Baxter, one of the ablest college presidents in, in the 20th century, toward rare books. The Chapin Library had come to, the, to Williams about the same time that Clements had gone to Michigan. With an endowment, the depression came, the endowment disappeared. This is a familiar story. Uh, and President Baxter looked at that thing, that Williams College was having to support it, and he said, what the heck good is it to us? Well, I'm stuck with it, though. So he, he did his duty by, by it. But one day, uh, Lucy Osborne, the custodian, uh, was bamboozled by a fast-talking guy in a cutaway, and a first folio was stolen. Uh, in, after due, uh, proper length of time, the necessary insurance money was collected, and soon thereafter, someone found the thief and recovered the book. And Finney was so mad, he had to give the money back. <laughs> 
The other thing that I dis that, 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 that happened to me there, because the great challenge of the library was here's a great collection of high spot rare books in all fields in an undergraduate situation. What do you do with it? Well, I worked out a program that I think well, was working of things like uh, when uh, uh, the English professor was teaching Dickens, I'd get our co copies of Dickens in parts and they'd bring the class in. I would go into classrooms uh, and I started to try to make the books interact with the educational process. Uh, and I thought, I think I was having a, a, you know, a reasonable, reasonable amount of success. But then at the end of two years, I got another telephone call, and this time it was from Barnaby Keeney, the president of Brown University, uh, and asked me to come down to be interviewed for the John Carter Brown job. Barney uh, had been president of Brown for only two years at that point, but he had begun a remarkable, the remarkable job of turning what was a good second-rate institution into his first-rate institution. And the f ten years that Barney, Barney was, at, at, was at Brown were exciting years, and I was privileged to come in early on it. Another characteristic that Barney had was that he believed in libraries and books, which I might add at that point was not a common characteristic among university and college presidents. Uh, he was able in his time at Brown to build, build or be, begin the building of two libraries, the Rockefeller and the Science Library, and he always felt that those were his proudest achievements. The uh, John Carter Brown Library that I found, however, was a little bit sleepy. Lawrence Roth was 73, had stayed on long after retirement for personal reasons. The staff consisted of three people, a janitor slash photographer, a secretary, and uh, a cataloger who was a nice, nice lady who had never had any cataloging training as a cataloger. Uh, the reference collection, I don't know how Mr. Roth did everything he did with that reference collection. There were, none of the basic things were there except the DAB. We had that because he was one of the authors and he was able to get it at a, at a, at a, you know, at a discount. But he refused to spend money on reference books. Had to, had, the authors had to give them to us. Uh, and basically the work, what he, had, what he was doing with that library was doing his own writing, of which I'm, sh you, I'm sure many of you are, are aware of the, the immense debt we, we owe him and to his scholarship, putting on exhibitions and writing his famous annual reports, which took one-third of a year to write. He was a very, very careful writer. His attitude toward readers were, uh, well, undergraduates weren't even allowed in to sit down. They could come in and peek in the cases, but uh, that was all. They couldn't sit down at the, at, the, uh, at the tables. Graduate school students were discouraged. They had to prove that they had completely exhausted all the resources of the main library. And some scholars were not <coughs> well received. There's a, uh, there's a, 
I don't know how any of you have ever read Catherine Rinker Bowen's Adventures of a Biographer, but there was, which came out after I went to the JCB, but there was a very embarrassing section in there. It's a book she wrote after she'd read it, after she'd, uh, uh, well, she has, she has a whole chapter about going to visit libraries that she'd worked in or talk, had correspondence with. And there's a back-to-back -back description of her going to Ann Arbor and being a greeted effusively by my father and dragged home and she ends up by spending a night in my bedroom and she goes into the John Carter Brown Library and Mr. Ross says, are you interested in Indian treaties? <laughs> well, no, she wasn't. So, <laughs> I mean, the, the concert... <laughs> uh, it was a real secret on the campus. Um, this is understandable. I mean, I, I, I don't want to make... make uh, because... When he went there, there wasn't even a professor of American history. Uh, and there was only one professor of American history uh, up until just before the war. The John Carter Brown Library is just too powerful a thing for that little college, really what it was, to handle. Uh, and the whole nature of higher education in those days was much more restricted. And I could go on on that, talk about that for some length. But in any case, uh, one of the, uh, the building, however, I discovered, was bursting at the seams. He, he had, Mr. Roth had been trying to do something about that, and as always, toward the end of one's career, major improvements are impossible. Always have to wait for your successor and his honeymoon before that happens. Um, but the thing that, I, that surprised me the most, like, uh, took me by surprise, was the state of the catalog. It was simply an author title inventory. Uh, with, thank God, and this is one of Mr. Roth's achievement, achievements, and I believe we were the first library to do it, a chronological file by imprint, which saved the day. Um, I should add here, of course, that the John Carter Brown Library does not collect archival manuscripts. This is primarily a collection of printed books. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know. I haven't tried to describe the library because I'm a... I'm assuming you all know what it's all about. Uh, the support of the library came almost entirely from its endowment, which had, well, it was, its book value was the same as it had been in 1904 when the library came, to, came, came under, the, under John Nicholas Brown's will. It had taken a real nosedive during the Depression, and the Brown family together with the university, made an effort to get it back to that level, at least. Uh, the university provided a very modest support, about 5 or 6% of the operating costs. And, of course, all of the, the purchases was done from income uh, provided by the associates of the John Carter Brown Library, which I believe after the, uh, the, the Yale group was the se second such group to be founded. And I might add here that people talk a lot about how you found one of those things, at least it's been my experience, certainly in the case of the JCB, the associates of the John Carter Brown Library were friends of Lawrence Ross, <laughs> and uh, that was the way you started, people who believed in what he was doing. Uh, well, I, I did two things, or no, a number of things. I think, I mean, I think I, let me just start with my attitude toward the, the support of the library. Uh, the William L. Clements Library, which of course I knew quite well, and which had been modeled after the John Carter Brown. Indeed, Winship had helped Mr. Clements write the deed of gift that uh, uh, 
that the University of Michigan signed. Uh, but Mr. Clements was able to make the University of Michigan assume all costs of operation, salaries, maintenance of buildings, and so forth, a certain sum of money and a certain sum of money to buy books. Mr. Clements left no provided for no endowment at the time he built the building. Uh, what he might have done uh, later on, we don't know, but he, too, suffered during the Depression. When I went to, to, to Providence, I said, I said to myself, uh, you know, Brown University has been getting an awful lot of benefit out of this place, and Mr. Roth had been was scraping along for years, uh, doing the best he can. I th and I, I felt that the university ought to, to, to provide more support. Well, President Keeney and I entered in, into a kind, of, kind of a deal. He said, yes, if you open up that, that place up to, uh, to the university and to others, uh, making it more available to us, I will in turn, quite reasonably, you know, provide more university support. He did say to me right off the bat, that if, you intend, if I catch you conducting your career the way Lawrence Roth has, you're going to be fired at the end of the first year. Uh, so that in 1958, the year after I got there, I sat down as I had at the Chapin and drew up a very elaborate proposal of, of, a, of a program involving fellowships, a build, a building renovation, publishing, attempt to make this place a center of activity. Uh, this resulted in the conference in 1959. I guess over a hundred people there that Barney set up. Louis Wright was the chairman, and we announced and launched this very, very ambitious program, uh, which is really the underpinnings of my 25 years there uh, at the JCB. It was carrying out, the, uh, attempting to carry out, I should say, what was set forth in that in that report, which was, uh, uh, which was printed and rather w widely distributed. But let me go back to, for a minute, to describing the attitude of the Brown faculty when I arrived there. They, in general, there was a complete lack of interest in using the library on the part of almost every uh, department that you might expect would do so. The history department aggressively said it is no interest in teaching Latin American history, Asian history, uh, African history, but not Latin American, in spite of the fact that our collections, of course, were, were among the finest. Uh, in general, the, the faculty, as I, said, we were well, as I said, we were a well-kept secret, thought of us in terms of Wright House's terms, USAEANA. That's what they thought of as Americana, which, of course, is a very small aspect of the Americana that we address. I th and furthermore, the fact that there were no manuscripts of any, except the Brown Papers, which is an exception and I won't go into now, uh, inhibited them. On one occasion, I was having coffee with a graduate student who had completed his, uh, everything but writing his dissertation in colonial history, uh, and he said to me, you know, I'd like to use the John Carter Brown Library, but all those books have been read. Well, uh, so you can see what I, I, I was up against. 
Well, I made, began to make all sorts of efforts, in spite of that, to, to, reach, to, to reach faculty and, and students. Uh, I offered a course in, in uh, what I call the, it was a seminar in, 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 in the use of printed sources. It was my attempt to say, well, all right, you, uh, uh, using manuscript sources requires a no developing a number of skills. Well, using printed sources does, too. Uh, based, of course, on the, on the collections in the library, and a number of, number of my students uh, did not only very respectable papers, but quite a few of those have been published. Uh, Barney found the money. Fortunately, uh, uh, we be received a very handsome bequest a year or so after uh, I arrived there. I seemed to spend my first year that being the beneficiary of a lot of uh, generosity that had been uh, generated by Mr. Roth. But uh, the entire basement was renovated, we became the first building on campus to get uh, a complete climate control. The staff was enlarged. A cataloger was hired. We get, finally got a map room for our fine collection of maps. Mr. Roth used to uh, work with maps on a table space not much bigger than that. Uh, Somebody get down on the floor and look at them. Uh, and I then I. I, 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 I spoke on TV, local te television stations. Uh, I spoke to alumni groups. Then I kind of took my show on the road. Uh, Eddie, Wolf, by this time, Eddie Wolf had come to the library company, and Eddie Wolf and, and Archie Han and myself both delivered, uh, 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 participated in, 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 in sessions at the American Historical Association and the Mississippi Valley Historical Association, now known as the Organization of American Historians. Uh, trying to sell our collections to, to, to the history profession. Um, the Bibliographical Society of America held a, <coughs> a meeting in Providence. Uh, there were... Uh, uh, the, the, the Second Ethno-History Congress was held in the John Carter Brown Library. That's this business of using printed sources in, anthropo in anthropological studies. The Society for the History of Discoveries held their first meeting there. Uh, Renaissance Conference, the uh, New England group, held their meetings there quite frequently. Uh, so in general, during those early years, I, I, was, very, very, I, I was busy trying to uh, uh, draw people's attention to the collections. In the meantime, we started the problem of the business of cataloging. Uh, and John Nicholas Brown and the Committee of Management were absolutely adamant that if we were going to start that cataloging, it had to be the, the finest cataloging that was done by any American library. Well, well with the training I'd had with John Alden and with the, 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 the Houghton, what I call the Houghton tradition, uh, I felt I, I, could, I knew what they were talking about. We, <coughs> I, uh, about this time, the uh, IBM people began to make a typewriter that had uh, very, you know, proportional spacing. Uh, and so we got some of those and began to, my idea was to produce cards that could then be photographed and be issued in a, uh, in a printed volume as the earlier volumes of our printed catalog had been done. Uh, since the earlier, since the printed catalog had, was complete through to 1674 and we had a chronological file, we started the cataloging with 1675 uh, and, and moved forward from there. Uh, a cataloging department of three people came into existence. 
Uh, ultimately, it was headed by Don Farron, who was, uh, and it was uh, some of you may remember, uh, who, who was here for a number of years as, as one of Terry's students. Uh, and the whole, uh, oh, and, 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 and the whole, uh, none of the reference books in the library were cataloged at all. And finally, of course, there was no record of in the John Carter Brown Library over in the, in the main university library. So we had a, so that became one of the main, main thrusts uh, of the day-to-day -day work in, inside the library. Well, these things went on pretty, uh, uh, you know, uh, the way things do once they get started. And I started going outside to try to raise money to get some of these programs that were the, 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 that had been proposed uh, funded. And in those days, I discovered that foundations were not interested in libraries. They were particularly not interested in the thing we needed most, that is, cataloging libraries. I visited the Lilly and the Carnegie and the Rockefeller, Old Dominion, as the Mellon Foundation was known in those days. Uh, and just as Cole turned on, the, the libraries were not something that interested them. The Council on Library Resources had, had, had been recent, uh, recently founded, and I, I spent a day with Louis Wright, and, who was then active in it, <clears throat> and uh, he and I spent a good part of that day looking at typewriters that could produce cards that would type the headings on it. And that was the biggest, you know, one of the biggest production problems uh, that, that existed. This gives you a notion of the, uh, of the state of the art uh, at that time. Other activities that uh, we, uh, we indulged in that we had, a, we, we thought we might be able to set up some sort of cooperative activity with the Latin American collection at the University of Texas. And we spent a lot of time on that, but that fell through for reasons I won't go into here. Uh, likewise, uh, Lewis Hankey, who was then at Columbia, the great Latin American historian, had an idea of getting together with the Hispanic Foundation here and doing a uh, microfilm series of American, uh, American Indian linguistic uh, materials. But again, nothing came of that. Uh, I, of course, during this whole period, was also working on my own, uh, uh, my own work, which is the, the pamphlets, The American Revolution. And by 1963, the first volume, the one, the American pamphlets, was in galley proof. And I had then determined to, to, to uh, do the English pamphlets. And by 1963, I was eligible for a sabbatical. So I was granted one uh, and went to England where I worked for uh, six months in the British Museum, as it then was. Uh, during that six months, I came to know very well David Foxen, who was still then, in, in, just before he left the, the British Museum. And uh, another member of the staff I met in the coffee room, the old public coffee room. I'd been going down there for coffee in the morning, and uh, I noticed a handsome, rather severe, but good-looking, uh, youngish man, very well, conservative, conservatively dressed, 
obviously a member of the staff, but not eating, having his coffee in the staff, in the staff lounge, which was behind. He was always out in the public lounge. And he always had a bookseller's catalog in his hand. Well, I, um, when they sat down and looked at the, what, he, what he had, and it was a list of books for sale by a bookseller in Philadelphia named Ralph Howey, with whom I'd done a lot of business. And uh, I screwed up my courage and commented on it. The response was frigid beyond belief. Until I mentioned the John Carter Brown Library, and then Ian Williston warmed up. <laughs> uh, other, other people, uh, Peter Skelton of the map department was a great help to us. He, he found us our, our, our first hotel room. Frank Francis I'd known from my pen days because he was a good friend of Charlie David's. Indeed, he, earlier he'd attempted to get me help. Me, he helped me in my attempt, unsuccessful at that time, to get a Guggenheim to, to go to England. I did spend about two weeks uh, in, 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 in Oxford because some friends of ours were away and were able to use their house. And there I came to know Lars, uh, Lars Hansen, whose great bibliography of, of, uh, of economic material is so important, and Desmond Neal, who was then his assistant. I returned from, uh, when I returned from England in 65, I uh, decided that the next step was to change the collecting policy of the John Carter Brown. Uh, and uh, sum it up, what, I was, what, I, what, what, we were, what we were able to do was to get rid of the inhibiting terminal date of 1800, substitute for the, substitute for the concept of uh, books uh, printed during the colonial period. This then enabled me to shift the angle of vision so we can start talking about collecting European Americana, that is, Europe's experience with America, uh, which is an approach that has not, best of my knowledge, no other library has, has, um, uh, has yet attacked. Two years after I got back from, uh, from England, Barney Keeney left. And then we went into a period of of 12 years, and I won't go into any great detail. It's what I call the period of, of revolving presidents. We had five presidential changes in 12 years. Um, the underlying factor, of course, was the student unrest of that era. Uh, the emphasis, I mean, the, 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 the complaints by the undergraduates that they were not getting enough attention uh, and in Brown, this took the, the form of a demand for a curriculum reform, which was achieved. In the long run, I think, I mean, in the short run, that, that did us some good because it loosened up the Brown curriculum a lot of it, so that people could undertake independent studies, uh, design their own courses, and a number of students came to the library to do just that. Uh, one particular group that came to us in very large numbers were, were, were the people in black studies because uh, we were able to point out to them that our very strong West Indian holdings almost automatically provided material for their interests. But that during that period, I was, I, it was obviously difficult to get the administration to focus on what we were trying to do. Uh, I will say, however, that during all those years, we had a provost named Merton Stoltz, who 
who carried the university through the revolving presidents and was a very loyal friend of the John Carter Brown Library, although he did something that I didn't like. In retrospect, he was probably right. Um, there was also a good deal, a certain amount of complaint on the part of the, or concern about the slowness of our cataloging process. That doesn't sound too unusual. So we had uh, we solved it, we solved that partially, and I won't go into that right now. But uh, it was during that period that Sam Huff and Don Farron came to the library, uh, perhaps one of the high spots of the period was the streeter sale, uh, when, and we had, we had a certain advantage there because many of the books that we wanted had, all, had been in the library at one time. Mr. Streeter had brought them up to Mr. Roth to be looked at. Uh, one particular, uh, and we got most of what we wanted at that sale. One particular thing that pleased me very much was this Costanzo map of Southern California. I didn't realize what was going up for sale. Um, Sam Huff, uh, who was a brilliant and erudite bookman to his fingertips, who was, whose field was the Italian Renaissance, began to build our Italian collections. We went in for manuscript maps. We got a, got a hack atlas from those great big uh, uh, late 17th, early 18th century manuscript atlases, uh, the thing made in London based on a, on a Spanish dotero that was captured in, in Panama. Among the, but perhaps the most important activities uh, in that period were the time when it was started by Bill Boni when he came to us and asked us to do for Sabin what the Antiquarian Society had done for Evans. We told him that was crazy. Sabin was not susceptible to that. The, the bibliography books relating to America had to be completely redone. Sabin's alphabetical. It should be uh, uh, chronological. Mr. Boni funded the using data processing to rearrange the uh, uh, Sabin numbers chronologically. And I won't go into the whole history of that project, but we, uh, the, the uh, John Alden's uh, European America Cana is now in the process of being published. Um, another high spot, of course, was the great Grolier trip to Italy, uh, which uh, was so much fun for all of us. And I think it was, it was in a way, a very important factor in making me see the European potential of, of, of the library. Um, That, those years of, uh, of revolving presidents, presidencies were not particularly comfortable ones. As it went on, it got worse and worse. Uh, after the unrest of the 60s and early 70s, then came things like oil crises. And, uh, finally, in 1977, we got a new president who brought in some people to reorganize the finances of the university and to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, just get the whole business of the university in better shape, and it badly needed it. And these were very hard-headed, bottom-line types. Uh, I might say that both my, my predecessor and I always have a problem when a new president comes to Brown University. The John Carter Brown might be something that they just don't understand. Sooner or later, they all do come to understand it and appreciate it. But during the revolving presidencies, when, one, uh, when a group of faculty were formed a cabal to oust 
oust the then president, and I was approached. I just said, I don't want to educate another president. But, uh, well, just to kind of sum it up, because I see my time is running out. Howard uh, Swear came in, and after an initial uh, period of, uh, of discomfort, he realized that something should be done, and he proposed to me to ask me whether he didn't think that I didn't think the time had come after 20 years to, to have another look at what the library was doing. And the result of that was the evaluation committee uh, under the chairmanship of Doug Bryant, with people like David Stamm and uh, uh, Onnit, who came and spent two and a half days at the library and issued a, 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 a report, which forms the basis for. Uh, for the future of the library. However, during those t those last that that, that period where I was there, we a number of things that had been started before kind of came to culmination. As I say, the European Americana got out, off the ground, so that finally, for the first time, we're getting bibliographical control over what the literature of that field is. Uh, Sam Huff produced the Italian show and the Italian catalog. The Italians and the Creation of America, a very successful exhibition which we first held in Providence, then was invited, we were invited to take to Florence, and is now down at the Smithsonian. Uh, my second book came out, the ones on the American Revolution. Uh, and one thing aside, which wasn't part of the library, but I, I can't get up and talk about mentioning Harold Hugo. Throughout my life, Harold has been one of my closest friends, and in, in, the in 1970, six or thereabouts. He retired from the American Revere Company and a group of us got together and uh, rather than publishing a festrift, we decided to do that album of reproductions uh, drawing upon the collections of the libraries that, with whom, which had been close. And it was great fun doing that because we carried it out entirely with, without Harold's knowledge of what was going on uh, and Harold can be a very nosy person. Uh, <laughs> but um, Throughout these years, and I haven't alluded to this, to this I'll just uh, mention it briefly, the relationship between the John Carter Brown Library and the main library was very uneven. It was lousy when I arrived. Uh, it was David Jones, the then librarian, and myself, developed a very good relationship for the first, first few years there, I mean, over the first six or eight years. Then he began building libraries, and it deteriorated again. Uh, so that when he retired, it was, when well, we talked to each other, we were pleasant, but the interaction between the two institutions was very difficult. Um, he was succeeded by Charles Churchill, who was there for five years, and Charles and I had our differences, but in, but in, 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 in uh, and looking back on it, he made a decision, which I think was one, to, one of great courage uh, and had far-reaching effects. The university was all set to tear down the old John Hay building, which had held Brown's special collections. It was a lot, it, it was decaying, and the attitude was, what do you need all those, all those old books for? Uh, when Churchill first came, he was told to solve that problem, and after looking it all over, he decided to fight for it. And he proceeded against the wishes of the university, I mean, the inclination of the administration, to convince them that that building should be renovated, and that someone should be brought in with professional competence 
to run a first-class special collections operation. And Charles brought in Sam Streit, who I'm sure many of you know. Uh, Ch Charles left at the end of five years, and he was su uh, succeeded by Jim Schmidt, who came from Albany. Now, Jim's no bookman. Uh, he's a, he's a hard-headed administrator, but Jim and I hit it off right off the bat. And from that, Jim and Sam and I developed a very strong and close relationship. Together, we've gotten the Title II C grant for cataloging. Well, so that when I now that I'm retiring, uh, I feel that I'm leaving the library in, in as good shape as could be expected. The ties with the main library are in good shape. The, 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 the evaluation report has, has, has provided a focus for the future. The cataloging is now in hand because with the advent of the new Library of Congress rules, which we helped help write through, through our work with the Athenaeum Group, uh, we can now get rare book cataloging done in a database using Ireland. Uh, there is a plan for an expansion for the building. Uh, we now have faculty liaison committee with a very very sympathetic faculty. The, 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 the nature of our faculty uh, ties has improved dramat dramatically in the last few years. As you all know, we <coughs> came back from London a year or so ago with two and a quarter million dollars, which helped the financial structure. Uh, so I, I feel that the library is, I'm ready, eager to hand it on to a successor, uh, a younger man with energy, uh, to carry the, the JCB into the future. Um, but looking back on the 25 years, there have been a lot of changes in rare book librarianship, as you, as you can see. But with all those changes, I still have an uneasy feeling that we in the rare book world still have an underlying dilemma of what is our function or functions? What is the function or functions that rare books perform and how do they fit into the scheme of things? And one form or another, that issue is still before us. Uh, let me put it very simply this way. Uh, there are a lot of people out there in administration, even library administrators, regard these things these collections as luxuries that don't perform a function. Well, I suppose in one sense it is. An archaeological museum is a luxury. A symphony orchestra is a luxury. A museum is a luxury. A ballet company is a luxury. But none of those organizations or institutions, when attacked, if they're attacked, the person, the burden of proof in the, in the attack is on the person who's doing the attacking. When we're attacked, we still have the have the burden of proof of, of demonstrating why we're important. Uh, and I think that it is up to us to still, I think we've still got to struggle with this. Oddly enough, I'm, I'm, I think, for one, that one of the reasons that we have this problem is that books are in libraries. Uh, and the American library profession, certainly, in the last, through most of its existence, from Melville Dewey on, has been concerned really with information. Books were the vehicle through, by which information was you know, spread. Nowadays, that isn't even, uh, in many instances, that is not true. But 
the importance of the book as an artifact in the history of, 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 uh, of uh, our civilization is something yet to be fully appreciated. Fortunately, things like the growing interest in the history of the book as a field of study indicates that it's coming along. But I think as a profession, we still have to make our statement more effectively than we have. Thank you.